The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I am Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host. And Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. And you can follow live tweeting of the show, ask questions, or make comments about the show during the program at hashtag bigbeacon. Our first segment is sponsored by the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at WholeNewEngineer.org. It's not just for engineers any anymore. And today, um, we're, we have a guy who was talking about the new engineer back in 1992. Uh, welcome to the show, Peter Denning. Hello. I'm glad to be here. Well, it's great to have you on, on, on the show, Peter, and... Um, I was looking back at my notes and found emails of our correspondence going back to uh, 96, and, and we've had a rich correspondence and, and interaction um, over those times. Uh, you're a scholar, you're an author, a professor, public intellectual. Actually, as I was looking at all the things you've done, what and, and at, at the end of the show, we'll tweet out uh, a Wikipedia biography, but what, what should our listeners uh know about you before we get started? Well, <clears throat> I'm uh, a long-term engineer. I've been uh, a computer scientist type of engineer since the 1960s when I got my Ph.D. And I just realized that um, this year, I'm in, this is my 50th year teaching computer science courses. How about that? Beautiful. So, uh, yes. I've been nice. I've been around for... Uh, the field for a long time and have a chance to watch many of the changes that have been happening. And I can tell you that uh, when I was a graduate student, uh, dreams like the Internet and artificial intelligence seemed like uh, things that were good to keep the graduate students going, but didn't seem like things that would happen in my lifetime. And boom, here they are. They've happened in my lifetime. So I... I got to grow up and watch the things, the technology that romanced me become mature and part of my life and part of everybody's life. Yeah. So, so in, the middle, in the middle of all that, I've been very concerned, as you have, about yep. what education looks like so that people can live in this world. Yeah, and you, I think you've 
it's fair to say that you've been ahead of the curve on 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 both of those things. The I guess I'm, I, I, as you think about that fifty fifty years uh, teaching computer science, what? Uh, yeah, I'm not even sure how to ask it, but it's like so. And what I, I want to ask it on emotional level, I want to ask it on a cognitive level. But what, as you oh. reflect on that, what what sort of sticks out for you? Uh, you mean? Um, Teaching fifty years of computer science. Yeah, but as uh, just uh, as you think back to those times to now, you 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 just called out the, all the things that have um, come into yeah. reality that 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 weren't there. Um, okay. What else? What else sticks out for you as you think back that far? Well, um, you know, I've I've sort of been uh, working through computer science for many years and haven't paid you know. A lot of attention to uh, some of the questions about how I was responding uh, emotionally, I guess. But um, you know, it always. Um, so I'm trying to. I'm having actually have a little trouble with your question because. Uh, oh, okay. You could. All right. Well, any yeah, answer you any answer you care to give would be fine. But I've been teaching and these kind of things. Now, I don't think those what you're really trying to get at. Yeah. So well. Anyway, what I what are you I'm, trying to get at here? I'm not I'm just trying to get at uh, you've been in this you've been in this field and doing this yeah. for 50 years. What what sticks out for you in in that long career that you'd like to tell people about? I, d- I didn't have a particular oh, I, thing I was getting at actually. So one one thing I could say that sticks out for me is uh, since you brought up the question of the engi- the new engineer, something I yeah. had been thinking a lot about in the uh, early 90s. Yeah. Uh, um. I went back and looked at that uh, article once again that I wrote then, and I see that, uh, what is it now, almost 25, 30 years since we wrote that, um, that the concerns that engineering students have and the employers of engineering students have are almost unchanged in that period of time. People are still worried about the world is changing faster and faster. They they don't know how to make sense out of things. Yep. Uh, they feel disoriented by unpredictability and uncertainty in the world. Um, they are concerned about larger issues like globalization and uh, uh, ec- ecological issues. And these these are the same kind of concerns that my students were saying in, in the early 1990s. And I'm uh, in spite of all the technology change, the underlying concerns are still the same. Maybe it's just part of being a human being, huh? Well, I think I think I think that's right. I think a lot of the things that uh, in, in reading that, rereading that article, and re- rereading um, Innovators Way, and and looking at some of your other things, uh, it seems like a lot of what's underneath is a concern for what it means to be human, and are we uh, are we conveying those things fully as part of these. Um, this professional education that yeah. that we're talking about. Before, you know, and I want to I want to go off. I want to jump into. I want to go back and talk a little bit more about um, that ninety two article. Before okay. we do that, you know, so you've you've had this long career, and and um, what you know, what were oh, what were what were some of your in, early influences uh, that uh, led you to make make some of the choices that you that you made in your career. Well, when I um, <clears throat> when I was a a boy, a, a 
little tyke, you might call me then, I, I became very interested in science, especially astronomy, and uh, uh, loved going outdoors at night, looking at the stars and reading up about everything that anybody knew about cosmology and all of that. Sure. And then somewhere along the way in there, maybe when I was about 12 or 13, I got hooked by electronics, and I thought electronics was a marvel. And, well, of course, the difference between astronomy and electronics is astronomy is about the stars and what we can learn from them by observing nature, and uh, electronics is about what we can do and build that might be useful in the world. And um, uh, so I guess uh, somehow or other I got bitten by that bug of, of doing useful things uh, around age 12 or so, and uh, started plunging into electronics, and, yep. and at, at that time, uh, electronics was turning in the direction of electronic computers, and so I got drawn in that direction, and uh, in high school, I built science fair projects, uh, built computers for a science fair project, um, so, so I was really, I'd really gotten into it by the time I got out of high school. And then so this was... was a- this was in the '60s, and so yeah, the technology uh, must have was it vacuum tubes or uh, early yeah, when semiconductors. I got out or? of high school, it was 1960, heading on to college at that time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the prime technology was vacuum tubes. Transistors yeah. were being talked about, but they were not generally available. There was still reports coming out of the labs about this new technology that didn't need to uh, have expensive. Uh, basically expensive light bulbs to run things. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, it wasn't until maybe four years later when I was getting out of college that transistors were becoming a widely accepted uh, thing for electronic circuits. So we, I, we did a little studying of, le- of transistor circuits in, when I was in college as an electrical engineer, but uh, yeah, there wasn't much to study at that point. And it wasn't until after that that I, I started getting more deeply involved with transistorized technology. Yeah. Well, I, I think back yeah. early, uh, mid-60s, I was in ham radio, and and uh, yeah. the exams for the ham radio uh, licenses were all about triodes and diodes and, and yeah. you know, electric. You know, it was all, uh, it was all vacuum tube and, and uh, quickly shifted in, in, in the 70s. You know, I so remember, on this show, we're all... Uh, Remember the stories about the uh, first electronic computer was built in 19... It was put in uh, operation around 1950, the ENIAC at um, University of Pennsylvania. That computer had 18,000 vacuum tubes in it. That's how it worked. And I I always... That always made me think of the light bulbs on the marquees of the theater... I know that my local theater didn't have 18,000 light bulbs on it, but uh, whatever number they had, there was always at least one light bulb burned out. And I always wondered how they kept the damn thing going. Because somewhere or other in the 18,000, there's going to be a, a tube that burns out on you, and you have to of stop course. and and get the thing going again. Yeah. So it was always uh, struck me as a engineering marvel that they got the thing to work at all. Yeah, one of my favorite uh, CS uh, historical pictures is a picture of Art Burke sitting at the console with wires and yeah. uh, 
yeah but so uh, so anyway so there so this is um so we're gone back maybe we're going back to the future in the show but um yeah. also on the show we're interested um you know mark and mark somerville and i wrote in a whole new engineer about the centrality mm-hmm. these days of unleashing experiences and right. uh, or people who help us unleash or ways in which we trust ourselves to unleash what are there some unleashing stories of of times well, you know, in, in your life where you think uh, about let, yeah. engineers? Uh, as I say, I, I was drawn to engineering. Even I was strongly drawn to, to science, but even more yep. strongly to engineering. Yep. And um, I've kind of been a little bit of both throughout my whole career, but I've always had a strong streak of an engineer in me. Yep. And uh, uh, today, uh, I think. Engineers are underappreciated. Um, when you when people talk about what is engineering, they frequently say engineering is the application of science to produce useful artifacts in the world. And that wasn't how I understood engineering at all. And I don't think most practicing engineers understand it that way. I think engineering is harnessing useful effects to achieve some purpose. Now, whether or not science was there before the engineer came along and tried to harness an effect, um, I don't know. I mean, sometimes it's true that science preceded the engineer and said, here's some effects that might be worth seeing if we could harness. And uh, there's other cases where the engineers were there first and found the effects, and it was on the scientists came in later trying to understand what the engineers had found. So, well, I don't so, think there's really a chicken. I mean, there, there yeah. the, these days there's a chicken or egg problem. Or, you know, if you go back to right. agriculture over, you know, if we say pick ten thousand years as an arbitrary number, maybe there's there's yeah. a ten- an interesting tension between understanding and and uh, artifacts in the world. But prior to that, you know, we've had stone axes for two and a half million years, even before human beings could speak. So there, there's no question, you know, in a certain sense, there's no question, there's no chicken or egg problem. The, the mm-hmm. creation of complex artifacts precedes science. And in fact, in some ways, science is merely uh, a, yeah. an interesting artifact of that inventive spirit in using that inventive spirit to, to mm-hmm. further understanding. So, I, I mean, I, scientists don't like to hear it discussed that way but and right. in fact they've the 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 status hierarchy of science has has flipped the story upside down and and made the understanding the the supreme and highest thing and and denigrates the the application as right. as mere application but i i i second i i second so and, I, and I, i'm raising i'm raising your bet a little bit i guess <laughs> yeah just that when when i'm around some of the uh Educators who claim that science is the fundamental thing and engineering learns from science, I just don't uh, completely agree with that. I certainly agree that sometimes engineering learns from science, but the rest of the time science learns from engineering. I think the two of them need each other and they dance together, but uh, it's, it's just not right to say one dominates the other. So I'm I'm an engineer. Well, and 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 bless you. And I and when I, I remember in reading the '92 article for the first mm-hmm. time, and 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 I thought, okay, here's a comp- uh, well-regarded computer scientist, a former ACM president, uh, using the word engineer without apology. And I said, what a cool guy, mm-hmm. um, be, because in in many ways. Uh, 
um, you know, computer science invested heavily in the notion that it was a science and not engineering, I think largely on status grounds, although uh, you can, there are other ways in which computer science has scientific elements to it. On, having said that, on in large part, it's about um, systematic creation of, of useful artifacts of various mm-hmm. kinds. And sometimes it's not even systematic. <laughs> yeah. We just do it because it looks like it could be useful, and it turns out to be useful, so we keep going. That's engineering. Yeah. It's so it's 92. It, you know, I spent yeah, the first ahead. part of my career after getting my... Uh, my PhD in becoming a teacher in, in a university. I spent the first, uh, I don't know, 15 years of that being a super nerd, if you want it by today's terminology. You know, focusing solely on the t- technology, writing tons of papers, getting research grants, going, giving talks on what I was learning, and uh, just kept going that way until finally, it was around 1980, I became. Uh, chair of the computer science department at Purdue. And at that moment, I started to learn that I had no idea on how to sell computer science to any other department chair. They somehow put up with me as a computer science department chair. I could not explain to anybody what we did in computer science in a way that interested them. Um, And this this, uh, turned out to be a turning point because it bothered the heck out of me. I could not figure out why a guy who that I thought was a pretty good writer, a pretty good explainer, that was me, yeah. could not interest the uh, scientists in other departments in my science or engineers in the engineering departments in my engineering. So this put me on a long quest uh, about what was how how was I educated and why can't I what, what am I missing that I can't see? about what they're interested in and how come I can't speak to what they're interested in. Yeah, that's and that's interesting that you uh, tie it to that, that moment. You're assuming uh, yeah. administrative responsibility um, for, for a department. How? Um, that's a whole new set of conversations to be involved yeah. in. Yeah. And when I was the professor, I simply had a small set of students to worry about and you know, mostly I'd stick my head into the abstract realm of whatever we called research and wrote papers. Yeah. But I was I'm, not I'm, out in the world of, of concerns, of real people trying to do real things. And I didn't realize that at the time. Yeah, so I actually I want to pick this up again. We, we we need to take a little bit of a break, but let, I want you to hold that thought. And I actually I want to come back. And so there's this turning point in 1980, and you know, 12 years later, you wrote um, the the um, educating the the new engineer. And I want to talk about some of what intervened and some of what you learned in in between. How about that? We'll do that. All right. Um, this is Big Beacon Radio with our our, our special special guest Peter Denning. Stay with us in the next segment. We're gonna we're gonna talk more about this uh, transformation uh, towards a more holistic or different way of thinking about engineering. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. 5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. The second segment is sponsored by 3Joy Associates at 3Joy.com. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership consultation to help you transform your educational institution. And you can ask the guest questions or make comments on Twitter at hashtag Big Beacon. So we're back with Peter Denning, um, and uh, he's out in California at the Naval Postgraduate uh, um, Institute. And um, Peter, we were, before the break, we were talking about uh, this writing of the your manifesto, uh, uh, educating mm-hmm. a new engineer back in '92, uh, and and. Uh, you mentioned the the change in your life in 1980 when you became a department head at Purdue. But what was it in '92 that inspired you to write write that article? Well, it was the intervening time. I can remember I woke up in around 1980 to the fact that yep. I didn't know a whole world of conversations about you know in higher education about even the other departments in my school. I just didn't really know anything about them, and I was unable to have a useful conversation with them. Yep. Um, <clears throat> but then I, as, as I got to know them better, I found myself unable to tell them any stories about computer science that seemed to interest them. And this, this bothered me. And, and uh, finally I decided to leave Purdue, where I was at the time, and go work for NASA at NASA Ames Research Center, where I was director of a new center called REACTS, uh, Research Institute for Advanced Computer Science, and our job was to bring computer science uh, the scientists, researchers together with NASA researchers to work on NASA problems. And over the period of years when doing that, I discovered more and more that my scientists, who I had working for me and they were going on to the teams, had no idea that they had customers. It's, Pause there, let that sink in. These engineers, scientists, had yeah. no idea they had customers. And the, their customers were the NASA people who were paying their, the money to have them do the research. Yeah. And the NASA people wanted 
demonstrations, deliverables, prototypes, whatever. They wanted us something they could see that showed progress. And when we, I take that back to my scientists, they would say, "Oh, you can't schedule breakthroughs." You know, I know, I know we said by June first we'd have something, but you can't schedule a breakthrough. And you know, the, the NASA people wouldn't accept that, and uh, we had a lot of trouble keeping funding for some of our people. Um, so this this was uh, you know, a big revelation for me that engineers have customers, and uh, that the somehow the educational system that was producing people that are coming and working yeah. here didn't generate any of that awareness in them, or in, for that matter, in myself. But when I first got there, I wasn't aware of this either. Um, so that struck me as a big gaping hole in engineering education. And uh, uh, by the end of the 1980s, I had uh, been thinking a lot about this and was starting to think about going back into academia, with which I had become somewhat disillusioned, and uh, trying to do something useful in the way of reform. And uh, it was in the late 80s I, I met Fernando Flores, who had a, a very strong influence on helping me reorient my thinking. Well, and and actually listening to you, much of the language you're, you know you use certain words that in for for some of us are, are is code language. You use the term conversations and stories yeah. and and noticing and and things like that. They right. sound sounds like ordinary language, but it, when 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 you've paid attention to Fernando, you um, have this sense of that those those terms are special and are actually in some ways a. a key to kind of the inner life of of what it means to be human when you're at that level mm-hmm. of awareness you're sort of seeing seeing life differently than just kind of living living your stories and so what so in meeting fernando how was it how did you meet him and and what was in what ways did he have practical effect on, well, on it started on, out innocently enough uh, somewhere in the late 80s his co-author terry winograd came by NASA and gave us a talk on a book they were writing together. This, the book was called Understanding Computers and Cognition. And uh, I was fascinated with Terry's argument that uh, artificial intelligence was based on a, a philosophy that would not, never allow it to succeed at its own objectives. Um, and I wanted to learn more about this, and Terry said most of that philosophy came from his co-author, Fernando Flores. And at that time, Flores had an office not too far away, and I made it, I phoned up and got an appointment with him and went over and we talked. And at that point, I learned that he was president of both a software company and an education company, both concerned with communication. And uh, so I tried to bring his uh, software technology back to NASA, and I enrolled in his education course to learn about uh, how he was seeing life uh, for myself, and that that was a turned out to be a transformative experience because that's where I learned all this, these new ideas and language about how we uh, work together in the world, how we co-invent the world that we work in. So uh, it was, it, uh, as a result of that, I. I had some conversations with him about what was missing for engineers because I wanted to go back and be engineering educator. And out of those uh, discussions emerged 
um, my manifesto on the topic. So uh, he was very helpful and influential in thinking that through. Yeah, and and so um, yeah. So actually, so the the I'm, I'm torn between the the, his, the historical story is interesting here, and then also the um, the theoretical and conceptual story is interesting here. So, um, all right. So it's it's uh, late '80s, and um, you're thinking about these things, and you were pre- you know, previously disenchanted with your experience in the academy. You went back, and and I'm hearing that inten- there was intention to help help um, help reform in the return. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and what you went to, that was when you went to George Mason. That's correct. Yeah, so uh, so uh, yeah, talk. Uh, I guess so. You were intentionally a reformer. Um, so maybe you can, as as an intentional reformer, what were your experiences like at George Mason? Well, uh, I suppose if you're a reformer, you find this everywhere. But you you find uh, you quickly find a few compatriots who uh, believe in the same things you're talking about and uh, so you you talk with them and that's what we did we had a small group that were all thinking about similar kinds of reform not only in engineering but elsewhere in the university and uh, we in our individual departments tried to produce some reforms and in my department the computer science department I got the faculty to agree to a set of principles, uh, which I wrote down and put into that engineering paper we were discussing. And then uh, that's about as far as I got, because when we started bringing up actual reforms that the faculty had to vote on, such as a new course or something, um, we kept getting no votes. It was sort of Of like they liked it in principle, but they didn't want to do it in practice. And so uh, the whole thing uh, didn't get very far. And about all I could accomplish was I worked with some some of my colleagues who were sympathetic, and we we started a uh, uh, research center called the Center for the New Engineer, where we looked at technologies that could support the kind of reforms we were talking about. Um, but that was a, uh, about getting it actually installed into George Mason University. That turned out to be a... Uh, unfortunate, futile experiment. And I think uh, engineering reformers have encountered similar issues in other universities. Yeah, it's, they're... It's yeah. difficult to get the faculty to agree to reform. Well, I think this actually, this is, might be a good time to shift to um, talking about your, your, your book about in, the innovator's way, Essential Practices for Successful Innovation, because I think that that book actually speaks to some of the the difficulties in getting, you know, so there's the, um, so in, in, in that book you, with um, Robert Dunham in 2010, you wrote The Innovator's Way, Essential Practices for Successful Innovation, and and you talk about there being eight practices for the innovator, and we've talked, we've been talking about some of these implicitly, if not explicitly, sensing, envisioning, offering, adopting, sustaining, executing, leading, and embodying, mm-hmm. and um and so in your story about reform at George Mason, I'm hearing success at the beginning of that um, sequence. Uh, and it's not a strict sequence in a process kind of way, but but 
success at the beginning and difficulty in, in adoption adoption and some of the downstream aspects right. of innovate getting it into the uh, uh, getting it into the getting it into the market and it and it seems that that's um, that that's where we do actually have a lot of misconceptions about how how change like difficult transformative change takes takes place that we sort of have the sense of it being um, a, some sort of systematic and regular process that is is predictable and there are lots of ways that it's that it's not predictable and many of the stories that you tell in the innovators way are stories about um, people having a vision but but shifting or or adopting or adapting to um, to their customers in ways that help them ultimately the successful ones become successful. Right. So as you think back, as well, you, that as, was you know, yeah. that, that that book was another putting that book together was another uh, like transformative process like the engineering thing and and you're right that uh, the difficulties we encountered in in accomplishing the reforms we were talking about. And inspired me to take a deeper look at why we were yeah. having those difficulties in the first place. And uh, <clears throat> when we started asking those questions, one of the first realizations I had was we actually had the wrong definition of innovation. And I got this realization, again, in collaboration with Flores, um, up until that time, my idea of innovation was actually kind of fuzzy, and it was that uh, innovation is the creation of new ideas. And after talking with Flores and working with some of my students on this, I concluded that innovation is the adoption of new practice in a community. More recently, we're now saying innovation is the emergence of new practice in a community, but in 2020, you know, 2010, 29, when we were writing the book, uh, innovation was the adoption of new practice in the community. And there's a world of difference between having an idea and adopting it. And uh, today, you know, as part of the research for that book, we, we learned that um, about when you talk to successful innovators and the innovations they, they fostered and produced, yes, they said that, about 90% of the work that they did over the years to get it adopted was uh, in the adoption part, and 10% of their work was the idea part. So it's like an iceberg. The stuff you see at the top is the good, easy-to-explain uh, idea, and the 89% that's hidden below the surface is all the, the work that people had to do to make that idea float. And uh, t the stories about innovation that we encountered in 2010 and before yeah. that all seem to make 90% of the weight go on to creating the idea and not, they didn't pay a lot of attention to what you need to do to get it adopted. And to me, that, that started to look like a major breakdown. A lot of people wanted to have innovation. They tried very hard to get it. And they were having these abysmally low success rates. At the, at the time, the surveys of industry were showing success rates of, of about 4% in innovation projects. So uh, 
this is a, a major breakdown we wanted to address. And, we, and even today, it's this idea that uh, that ideas reign dominant is the, the dominant idea, almost like a circular statement, isn't it? The, well, there's and, a, yes. There's a there's a giant adoption chasm out there that very few people seem to understand. Or at least the non-entrepreneurs have difficulty, and educators don't understand it at all. Um, and uh, so whatever we're teaching our students is not helping them live in that world where they're being called upon to be innovative. I think the so, single yeah. most I think the single most important thing that um, has helped me as an educational innovator was some colleagues doing work in innovation and they and um, we had uh, one of them on the show not too long ago, Bruce Bojack, and some of their research into innovators in large companies and, and this experience that they, large company innovators all share where they, they cross the bridge. And crossing the bridge means that they come to understand that solving the political problems in their organization are just as important. Uh, if not more important right. than solving the technical problems, and that those problems are just like technical problems in terms of the problem-solving characteristics that you bring to them. And that, I think that single thing like helped the, me the uh, most of anything that I, in terms of working the working the educational side of the street and getting people to to adopt uh, at least somewhat successfully, has been the single most important thing to understand that that, that those 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 human problems and political problems cannot be dismissed, or you, that you just can't make a good have a good idea and make a good argument. That uh, there's a lot of other stuff under the hood of getting those ideas accepted and uh, adopted, or or actually to have them have them emerge. Well, the, this is why we like the term practice yeah. in the definition of innovation. Yeah. Practice means, you know, rough at the highest level, simplest level, uh, means people are doing it. And that's different from being able to talk about it or even knowing that it exists. Because doing it requires developing a skill. It requires embodying a skill. Not just developing, but embodying a skill. So the if an innovation to be adopted means that the community of people who are doing the adopting has to uh, change their practice. They have to embody something new that replaces something else they used to do. And that's a completely different notion than telling them a wonderful idea about how things could be better. So we began yeah. to focus on that. As we know, yeah. noted that uh, there are people who seem to be very good about producing adoption. And we asked, what skills do they have? Yeah. And we discovered they have, we can, we can identify uh, eight skills, which we, you listed out before. And we wrote about them in our book. So the claim is that somebody who learns those eight skills or at least organizes their team so the team has the eight skills will be much more successful in getting innovations accomplished and adopted than somebody who simply produces ideas. And unfortunately, much of the current policy and storytelling about innovation today is about being more creative and producing more ideas. Yeah, so I no, think we're, it's, you know we're not a, getting, yeah. uh, we're not getting the amount of adoption we wish we had. Yeah, so interesting. That's actually interesting. The you know the, so there's uh, 
have, like you say, having a good idea and then not seeing it, not seeing it adopted can be uh, frustrating. As I was rereading uh, Innovator's Way, I, I was struck this time. I, I remember thinking of it at the time, but I, as I was looking at it, kind of going through it at the, the highest levels and trying to say, all right, what are some, seeing some of the pieces, I was reminded of all the all the fundamental um, coaching kinds of pieces that that come from uh, Fernando Flores and the uh, Maturana work and so, much of the, the 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 fundamentals that are now part and parcel of executive or leadership coaching that that in many ways uh, certainly go through Fernando Flores's uh, Berkeley mm-hmm. uh, dissertation um, the noticing the listening the questioning the speech acts all that stuff is sort of groundwork for yeah. then each of the eight skills if you're if you're a skilled practitioner of deep listening and noticing and asking open questions you've got a head you got a leg up in all of the eight mm-hmm. skills as far as i can see it and and it's well, like this whole, there's this, this whole core thing exposes another yeah. deficiency that we have in education i think uh, and it's this is really a deeply rooted deficiency and most educators don't see it is that uh, especially in the sciences and engineering we think that uh, the the goal is to learn a body of knowledge yeah and once we've learned the body of knowledge we can go out and apply it yeah and there's very little appreciation or discussion of the skills the engineering skills for example or the design skills and so there's nothing no attention given to that it's always about uh, learning more knowledge, learning more facts, and a hope or a belief that at some point you'll be able to go apply it. And you, you, uh, we now know that you'll never become skillful at something by reading a book. You have to go do it. Isn't this what they call the difference between explicit and tacit knowledge? Yes. That uh, we, we talk a lot, we, we tell stories about tacit knowledge, the things that we can do, but we can't say how we do them. Uh, those are all for, or in the, the realm of skills, and much of what we're looking for from engineers, whether it's listening to customers or inventing new technologies or designing programs, is skill sets. And we just don't talk about that in education. We don't do anything in engineering school to develop the skills. We give lip service to them, but we don't actually do them. Well, and we even even our language betrays us. We don't even really have, I, you know. I think the the uh, Fernando's work and other things in that direction help give us language. But mm-hmm. there's there's something wrong with our language that to, we, if you think about talking about sort of the emotional component or the embodied component or or right. um, the the doing component, we don't even really have good language that we we. We overload terms to the point of them not really being special and 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 not really being helpful, and so it's it's even hard to it's even hard to talk about it. And 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 a lot of times people hear the terms in that we use in an ordinary sense when we mean them in a in kind of a special sense, and, and, well, the, and uh, they know, don't the, get it. The big, I think, a big thing that a lot of us miss, and I certainly missed it for a long time, was that we all have this notion that purpose of language is to, to convey yeah. information. Yeah. So I'm going to send messages to you, and you're going to send messages back, and from these messages we'll learn each other intentions. 
And then once we learn each other's intentions, we can create actions which are the movements of our bodies to go do them. And this is a very deficient view of language. Uh, the, the other side of language, which Flores talks about all the time, is the generative side, yeah. the side in which we generate actions, that we generate new worlds, we generate new things together. Uh, we do this all the time, but we don't realize it. And thus, we never, since we don't realize it, we don't become skilled at it. And a lot of the things that we want to do, we just uh, bumble up. I'm, I'm enjoying this conversation. Why don't we, let's take a break from it and okay. then come back and continue on, on that on that point with language, but then head into some of your current thinking about things like computational thinking and, and where this, sure. uh, where, where uh, reform efforts might go from, from here. How's that sound? Okay, good. Yeah. So uh, this is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest, Peter Denning. In the next segment, we're going we're gonna to take, take on computational thinking and other X-thinkings, design thinking, and, and talk a little bit about uh, where some of the reforms go from here. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. And our final segment is sponsored by Big Beacon itself. Join us this fall for free webinars on 21st century leadership and change acceleration. Watch bigbeacon.org for details or write to me at Dave Goldberg at deg at bigbeacon.org to find out more. And we're back with uh, Peter Denning. And in the last segment, we were we were talking about uh, oh, we were talking about language and speech acts and 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 the skills necessary skills and practices necessary to be an effective innovator and how um, this misconception that, that teaching is teaching and education is about mastering a body of knowledge um, uh, almost disembodied from any kind of um, any kind of uh, practice what what more should we what more should we say about that Peter well, I, I think it's sort of like in tune with the times, this belief that you're talking about. We live in a, uh accelerating computer revolution. So um, we see computers invading everywhere in the world. We're learning how to digitalize most everything. 
we have very powerful computing technologies to manipulate the digital forms that we've created. We have these uh, enormously well-connected networks that, that uh, move these, these piles of data around. We store them, and uh, now we mine them and do all sorts of uh, really amazing things, actually, yep. with, with these uh, computer revolution. It's going into all the sciences, going into engineering, um, just everywhere. So everybody's trying to respond to the computer revolution. One of the... Uh, uh, things about the computer revolution is, you know, computation is done by machines. Uh, and that's a kind of disembodied abstract world where computation takes place. Yes. And uh, it's not, you know, it, to the extent that we get uh, it wrapped up into, into computing and the computer, we become more disembodied and less able to respond to what's going on around us. And... Uh, less able to be able to be an innovator, for example, or a good educator. Yeah, so that, so you know, that's a that's an that's a remarkable aspect about our times and there's and it it's a heightened trend and and people see it. And and actually when you were speaking before about artificial intelligence and you're saying, well we've actually got many of the examples of the things that we were seeking back then and in both of these examples though highlight the missing stuff you know so these computer programs are not intentional they have no emotions they don't actually have any of the stuff that is actually special about being human and was the stuff that we're calling out as missing from education Comment. Yeah, they, when, I, when I was growing up in computer science, the word artificial intelligence, or should I say the phrase, yep. was referring to a dream about making machines that could think. Yeah. Okay? And, and, and not only act intelligently, but think and have self-consciousness. Um, the, this dream hit a, a stone wall in the 1980s and uh, when the I think the main research sponsors got very annoyed because all the promises that were being made that came out of that dream were not being delivered, and, and they felt like they were wasting their research money. There's huge amounts of research being spent on artificial intelligence. Yeah. Uh, so artificial intelligence went into a dark period and then started to emerge in the last 10 years with a whole new philosophy of artificial intelligence about trying to do, uh, trying to learn how to automate everyday cognitive tasks. Uh, so, you know, scheduling meetings or finding your friends or all these sort of ordinary things, getting a taxi now. Yeah. Uh, we can do all these things extremely well with by collecting data and uh, analyzing that data in real time using very powerful computers. One of, one of, to me, one of the most striking examples of this is the Google Maps, which show you the current traffic jams on the highways that you want to drive. Those, those are really the traces of Android phones telling you where they're getting held up. So that's how they get the data for the Google Maps is from Android phones and iPhones. So this, this is an example of a uh, you know, a new AI thing. It's supposedly AI. It's just a 
in fact, a very good application of sensing and simple processing. Um, so what we've got today, these things we call AI, are actually programs that do a very narrow cognitive task, but they do it so well and so much better than we can that we want to use the program instead of trying to do it ourselves. So it's a great sure. big advantage. But it's, it's actually not intelligent at all. It's still being called artificial intelligence, but it's yeah. not actually intelligent at all. It's just a machine doing something really, really well, and we love it. So we're still a long way from whatever you might call artificial intelligence. Yeah. Actually, related to that is this the sense of people trying to understand the relationship of uh, education to yeah. uh, computation. And you, you're working on a piece uh, that has the title Remaining Trouble Spots with Computational Thinking. And so what's... Um, Describe for our listeners what that piece is about. Yeah, well, this this is uh, you know me looking at the there's there's been this um, movement, this educational movement started uh, around 2006 um, to bring computer science into all high schools in the U.S. and now it's become more of a worldwide movement. Uh, it's been called CS for all, and the belief was that in a computerized digitalized world, uh, everybody needs to know about computing and learn how to program. Um, so the, uh, this notion has become very successful, and there's now a very large number of organizations pushing it. The federal government is involved in pushing it. Many teachers are being trained. There's new curricula being looked at for high schools and other places. And the buzzword that's gotten established behind all of this is computational thinking. The idea being that uh, as we adapt ourselves to mastering this new technology, we need to learn to think differently, and the way we need to learn to think is called computational thinking. So that's, that's uh, become the buzzword, and uh, you know, it's kind of, it almost turns the phenomenon on its head. The phenomenon is the what you might call phenomenal adoption rate of computing in yeah. all fields. And in its wake follows a new way of thinking, which people want to call computational thinking. But the movement, the educational movement, is claiming the opposite, that computational thinking is the driving force behind mm. the computer revolution. And there I think they've made a monstrous mistake because this goes right back to that issue we were talking about before, with the belief that knowledge precedes action and skill. Mm. Uh, so if we think that thinking precedes our computational action and skill, we're getting it backwards. And we're going to be teaching our kids the wrong things about computational, yeah. computational design. I wish we had more time, Peter, but we're yeah. coming to the end of the uh, end of the show, I, and we've we've opened actually a really useful and interesting can of worms, and maybe we can get you back <laughs> on the show uh, another time. But uh, let me give you the last words. Uh, that if people want to find out more about you and uh, your writing and and thinking, um, uh, and we're we're going to tweet out some things, but where where would you like them to go? Well, you know, all the stuff I've written is on my website. There's a big library of stuff, so. Uh, if you tweet that, people can 
click away, find the publication page, and then explore that and find all sorts of essays on these topics. Great. We'll do that. Peter, thanks for... that, there's the books that you've mentioned. Well, and we'll, we'll tweet those out again. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. It's been great having you. Okay. Thank you. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. Special uh, thanks to our guest, Peter Denning. Help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us after the show at hashtag bigbeacon um, to uh, engage in a conversation about today's show, show and join us next week. Same time, same channel in our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.